Hello, strong, feisty women. Some of you may recognize my voice. I'm Celine Yeager, host of the Hit Play Not Pause podcast. Throughout my career as a professional health and fitness writer and now a podcaster, I hear countless questions from women who are trying to understand how their ever-changing hormones impact their sports performance. So we decided to serve up some answers in a brand new series called Hormonal that we will be releasing on the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast feed. Throughout this four-part series, reproductive endocrinologist Dr. Carla DiGirolamo and I will be tackling topics like periods, the pill, pregnancy, and conditions like PCOS, all from the perspective of sports performance. If you aren't already, follow the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast and stay tuned for our first episode releasing on April 15th. Also, have questions you want answered? Send us a voice note at speakpipe.com slash hormonal and we'll get it answered on the show. You are listening to the Girls Gone Gravel podcast, a podcast for women who are chasing epic and everyday adventures on their bikes. We are a production of Live Feisty Media and hosted by Christy Moan and Katherine Taylor. Okay, we're sitting here talking to each other over Zoom, getting ready to record the beginning of this podcast. And Catherine just looks at me and waits for me to start because she knows how much I hate it. And it's like, you know what, people, find a friend that will continuously push you outside your comfort zone, make you put on your big girl chamois because I freaking hate it when she does that. And she sits there and laughs at me until I finally start. So, hi, Catherine, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you today, Christy? Well, there you go. It's a very long intro. I'm feeling super empowered today. (laughs) That was my whole goal, was for you to feel empowered today. (laughs) It was really just a mess with you, but I'm glad that it worked out that way. Oh, man. You're something, for sure. (laughs) I've been called something before. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I'm sure we both have. (laughs) (laughs) How are things in Kansas? No, they're great. And um, first of all, I before we really get going, I totally loved um, your newsletter. Oh, thanks. And from this last week, and I was thinking on my ride this morning that we need to have a shirt that says women's work on it. Yeah, that would be a good one. Yeah, I was listening to My Favorite Murder um, podcast. I haven't listened to that yet. People talk about it. I know, I I have too many. I can't keep up with all of them. I'm listening to all the political ones right now. The, the last two episodes that I've listened to was on the, the shirtwaist um, uh, fires. And then, the, then this one is, the one that was on today was the radium girls, all the, the women that died working in the radium factories, putting glow in the dark on watches. Anyway, the long and the short of it was like, it was framed as women's work. And I just like, it was really resonating with me with, with your n- newsletter on how the hustle that we all do and i'm like you know women's work is supposed to mean something negative but in my mind's eye it means you're hustling you're busting your butt you're figuring out a way to make the world a better place and you're sewing together whatever you can to make ends meet for yourself and your family and to make just to make things better for other 
other women and, and just other community members. And so I want a t-shirt that says women's work because that's what I do is women's work. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny because I feel like uh, sometimes the younger people think they, they invented hustling. I'm <laughs> like, oh no, <laughs> it's been going on for quite a while. Like if you have a dream, going after it and figuring out a way. Well, there was one time I had literally three full-time jobs and two twins at home. Like, I don't even know how I did that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, it, I always have like two or three things going on. And, and some of it is like, I could go to a company and make a lot more money, but I like, it, that just doesn't fit me. Right. Like I agree. Being able to create my own things. So that's anyway. just who I am. <laughs> Much to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> Man. Well, we have a hustler on the show. So yeah. before we get to that, I do, I do want to talk a little bit about where we are with our DK update. I yeah, tell us. It. Well, we sent out our, a, a letter kind of giving an update and trying, you know, in our efforts really tr truly to try to be transparent. But the big the big thing was, was the update with the Con Nation um, going down there and, and really them explaining the entire situation um, to us and how they were feeling in this process and their request. Um, and you can see, you can go on the website and see the, see our statement, then a link to the Con Nation statement. Um, but they've asked us to move away from using anything related to the Con Nation in our renaming process which has been a challenge. And if I'm being, you know, 100% honest, I was really, when we first went down there and we got that news, I was really upset because I felt like, um, I felt like we had done such a disservice. I mean, I know we have, but, but even in a bigger picture that, that, that as a community, we, we'd all kind of let them down and we're not able to move forward with what, with what they, with anything that was related to that. So that take, you know, it took off things like Kansas and, and Southwind and a bunch of other names that we've kind of really been uh, floating around with. Um, but also really getting to the point where respecting 100% um, what they've been through and their, their desire to be just kind of left out of this process and, and wanting the community to kind of step away from reaching out to them and talking to them and just have a clean break from it. Um, so with that, I mean, it has, opened up different doors and different opportunities and, and we're getting close to a name, which I'm, I'm getting excited about. It's been, I've said to somebody, it's like trying to name your 15 year old kid. Um, yeah. It doesn't have a name. Like, how do you do that? Like they have this whole history and, and this whole thing that goes on behind it. And, but, but we're getting People really hate on social media, no matter what you name it. Oh yeah. I'm fully prepared for the hate. Um, we put out that update and we still got hate because people were, quoting the old newsletter, not even looking at the new news. And I'm like, there's, it, it feels like when you sit in this spot a lot that there just really isn't any winning. And um, that's not true. There's a ton of support. There's a ton of people that are really helping us um, guide this forward. And I'm really focusing on, you know, focusing on the helpers, um, which has been, which has been good. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited about, about our way forward at this point. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be pretty rad. So, so when, when do you think we're going to get to know the, the um, our goal in all honesty is September 12th. Um, and then again, like that's our goal, full transparency. We feel if we aren't there, 
the update will be we're not there because we we're going to get this as right as we can um, because that's super important um, and i don't want to rush i know it seems from the outside maybe it seems from the outside i think somebody like you understands this is not easy at all so we're as we're working through this um, and engaging in community um, slendering the list working hard to, to make sure that that this event um, represents the inclusivity and the area and the the, the gravel sport um, we want to get it right so september 12th is our goal that we hope we have it right and can announce it to the world um, if not then the update will be with with the new date but it's not going to be much longer regardless so um, that's exciting. It's really important to take your time and get things right. And coming from a marketing perspective, mm -hmm. I'll say a funny and probably inappropriate story, but there's a race around here that they rebranded a few years ago. And like they did this big, we have a new logo, we're this new race. And the logo came out and I, the, the second I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is male anatomy. Oh gosh. Uh, and so I was like, maybe it's just me. So I sent it to like four friends and I was like, does this remind you of anything? And they're like, oh my gosh, it's like three little penises. Oh no. So, you yeah, know, I'm going to have nightmares. Like, because <laughs> like the, the pressure cooker that we are in deservedly. So like, I don't, I'm not asking for sympathy with this, but it's just like, yeah. I'm like holding this so close to my heart and i'm so it feels like such a big monumental task that i definitely don't want to have three penises as our logo <laughs> i i i don't think you will just because i can't imagine what name that would work with but anyway <laughs> if anybody wants to know what race it is in georgia send me a private message i'm gonna ask it's not a gravel race um Whew. i'll text you the logo later yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, that's funny. Well, I have exciting news. What? I'm finally leaving the state. Uh. <laughs> um, yeah. I, so when this comes out, I will be on my way to Washington State for three weeks. So getting to hang with your niece. I am. I'm getting to hang with my niece. My uh, my brother is in PA. Well, he's a PA in the military, and then he's taking this extra schooling. So it's basically like he's a resident. And my sister-in-law is a nurse practitioner school and they moved in the middle of COVID from Tennessee to Washington state, like in May. So she couldn't get her clinicals and they're not taking clinicals in Washington. So she has to come back to Tennessee to do her clinicals where she started nursing school. And, um, because my parents have some, you know, some concerns about traveling at their age. And then her mom has some things going on. So I'm going to be, um, Sister mom or aunt mom. Wait, my my friend called it sister wife. Sister She's mom. like, you're going to be the sister wife. And I'm like, no, no, I'm no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so yeah. So well, your, your niece is probably going to be out biking you by the time you leave there. <laughs> She's four and a half and she um, rides without her um, training wheels because she never had training wheels. She did a balance bike yeah. and now they're taking her on the little mountain bike trails. That's so I'm going to be out there. If anybody uh, from that area, I'll be in the Tacoma area rides. Let me know. I don't anticipate having a lot of time just because of responsibilities, 
and I'll, I'm not taking my bike because of the responsibilities with my niece and just won't have a lot. He's working six to 10 hour shifts a week. Um, but he does have a mountain bike that fits me. So I could do some really easy riding around and I would love to see the area or meet anybody, um, meet up. We can go outside for a socially distanced beer out there. So I would love to meet any other women that are out in that area. Well, I'll be anxious to hear how your trips through the airports go. Yeah. I'm not that nervous because I'm flying from a giant airport straight there on Delta. So we'll see. And an article did just come out about flying is much safer than. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the plane part is, I'm more worried about the airport. Yeah. You just like. The Atlanta airport is huge. huge. Like it's a massive airport. So there's never a place like, you know, I'm sure in Kansas, like when you go to the airport, it's kind of small. Well, it's small, but there's never anybody there. So. Right. But so imagine this is the world's largest airport and air travel is down 70%. So there's lots of space to spread out. Good. Um, So I don't know about the Washington side, but I'm not that worried once I get there. Just book your butt out. Well, well, I have planned to because I'm a very minimalist, but then my mom, I swear, I'm going to have to take a second suitcase for all the things she's bought for my niece. Oh, that's so cute, though. I mean, that's what grandma was supposed to do. That's what they're supposed to do. And I'm sad that they can't go out and spend time with her, but just for them with some being their age and some um, health issues, it just wasn't smart. So I don't think I bought the first piece of clothing for my twins until they were like three or four years old. Because my mom would just constantly bring stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So very wow. grateful for that. But anyway, we talked about hustlers. We did talk about hustlers and I'm really excited. We have just Sarah on the podcast today and she did one of our DIY summer gravel sessions and uh, she was with Janelle. I'm sorry, Janelle, I'm forgetting your last name off the top of my head, but she and Janelle did one on nutrition and it was one of our most popular one uh, sessions. And so I wanted to get Jess and eventually I would love for us to have Janelle on as well. Uh, Cause Jess just has like this crazy storage. She actually was on Ted King's King of the Ride podcast a couple of weeks ago. We both listened to that. So you can go get a lot of her backstory mm-hmm. there. We wanted to dig in a little more on like her story of what it was like to be a woman pro all the jobs she has to work to make ends meet um, we got a lot of behind the scenes scoop. Yep. It was, it was a good, it was a solid interview for sure. Yeah. And she gives a coupon code. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. You so know. you have to listen to the end cause she's going to give you a discount on her. We have some in the mail to us. She makes oh, okay. these bars that are like cookies and apparently they taste like cookies. And, and I, free. Is that correct? I don't remember. There are some that are I don't remember. She'll, she talks about it in the podcast. That was Monday. It's Friday. <laughs> it's actually Tuesday. <laughs> well, well, when you're hearing this, it's Tuesday. Or maybe it's Wednesday or Thursday. Who knows when you're listening? We don't care. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll go on and get on to our episode with Jess Sarah. Hey, Catherine, I'm so excited that Gooders Come On is one of our sponsors. 
I know we love Gooder sunglasses because they come in so many fun colors and sassy fun names. Like I got Lance's afternoon uppers. And I got Rose before Brose. <laughs> <laughs> they're really fun. And they're also performance sunglasses. So they're no slip, no bounce, and polarized. They start at a ridiculously low price of $25 a pair. <laughs> Which means that Gooder is generously offering our listeners nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. You do not need a discount when you already have the most affordable performance shades on the planet. So go to gooder.com slash feisty and that's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash feisty now. These glasses even look good with mud on them. They do. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of the Girls Gone Gravel podcast. I'm here with Christy. Hey. And we have as our guest this week, Jess Sarah, who I'm so excited to talk to. Hi, Jess. Hi. How's it going? Good. So, Jess, you're in Montana, right? I'm up in Whitefish, Montana, in my hometown. Wow. Move back to the hometown. Hopefully. Hopefully making a permanent move up here next year. And were you in California before then? Yeah, my boyfriend Sam and I live in Encinitas most of the year, and we're just looking to make a little bit of a shift for our lifestyle. That's, That's awesome. a big shift. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a bigger shift for Sam. I know what to expect coming from a small town, but he's from Washington, D.C., so I had to like pace him into three years of visiting Whitefish and woo him with all the good gravel and trail riding up here. <laughs> Is it working? So far, but we haven't spent a winter yet uh -huh. in Whitefish, so there's that small detail I need to work out. Oh, so you went there after COVID had already, like we were well into COVID then? Yeah, we came in June, which was the plan anyways, was to race and travel from here. That's worked really well for me in the summers in the past. It's kind of like a mid-acclimation step. Whitefish is at 3,000 feet, so it's like a nice introduction to heading off to acclimate for races like Colorado Classic. And this year I was, you know, thinking about some of the other races like Steamboat and thought I would already have my DK legs in me and be <laughs> ripping fit. <laughs> and dad, we're all still having glasses wah, on the wah, couch. <laughs> wah, wah. And here we are doing podcasts on Zoom. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. Yeah, Catherine's been pushing, like, let's get these people on because no, everybody's got time right now. Yeah. I'm like, everybody says yes. It's amazing. <laughs> um, well, you did one of our most popular uh, webinars. You were the co-host to that. And we got to hear a little bit of your story. It's on YouTube if people want to go see it. But you do a lot of things. So why don't you tell us, give us a little bit of your story and what you do. And uh, I know we, have, we were chatting a little bit before we hit record and we have all kinds of questions for you. Right. So my story is a little bit unique because I kind of diverted the path that I thought I was going down. I moved to San Diego to attend grad school at San Diego State. I was not a cyclist at the time. Uh, like we talked about, I grew up in Whitefish, so I definitely had an adventurous spirit and I loved spending time outside and seeing people riding around San Diego and in the coastal areas. I thought that looks like something I would like to try. 
Um, nonetheless, I was studying elite male cyclists and looking at bone loss and calcium loss uh, through sweat in grad school, just to give you the short story of it. And that was kind of the segue, how I started uh, getting to know more about what road cycling was specifically. And so I had always intended on doing that program specifically to do a PhD. And I was going to stay in the environmental studies field and head off to likely the University of Texas where the research was very prevalent in that area. Um, Go figure, Texas. (laughs) So you don't even need an environmental chamber there. (laughs) But so I ended up diverting because I found cycling. And in order to make my cycling life work, I became uh, sort of like a hustler in a few different areas. I started a private chef company and started using that as my means of an income so I could support a pro cycling career on the side. And kind of through all of that, I ended up starting an energy bar company called JoJ Bar. And before I knew it, I was down an entirely different career path, really wearing three hats as a cyclist, a chef, and an entrepreneur. So that kind of leads the, the short story of where I am today. And that just opens like so many questions. <laughs> So I like if I'm going to start anywhere, I, I have to bring up, um, you know, one of my introductions to you was um, just listening to your podcast that you did with Ted King not too long ago, which is a great place to go and listen to really get kind of your entry background. But um, yeah, I think you talked about one of your um, uh, uh, teachers or your professors telling you that, you know, you needed to conduct one of the tests on yourself. Um, in order, (laughs) which has kind of led you to figure out maybe you would be a badass on the bike. But, um, can you talk about that experiment a little bit? Because it was incredibly interesting. Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, recently talked about that experience on the King of the Ride podcast, but essentially what we were doing is we were, you have to collect baseline data on all of your subjects. And so we were recruiting elite male cyclists into the lab. And this was back in like 2005. So the protocols were a little less high level than they are now. And we needed to collect their core temperature. First off is really important in environmental study. You have to collect sweat. um, And then you have to get all of their baseline measurements like VO2 max, weight, all of those things. And so what I was trying to get these guys to do is come into the lab and insert an anal thermometer, um, (laughs) (laughs) which in itself is like, what? (laughs) And then also wear it while they were riding on the bike in the environmental chamber. And just to make it more miserable, I'm going to stick patches all over your skin to collect your sweat. And that's how you do the assays where you measure the electrolytes and the calcium and everything else that's coming out of the sweat. So I joke that that study was wildly popular and I had people lining up to do it. Um, But of course, every single guy that showed up and I'm showing them this thermometer that it's not short, it's like feet long. This, This is worse than it actually sounds. And telling them, okay, you have to go into this room and you have to insert it really far because we have to get an accurate core temperature. And so they would all look at me and say, have you done this before? So I had to put myself through the study so I could tell them, yes, it's not too bad, even though it's 
kind of horrible. And <laughs> so that's, that's what I did is I put myself through the study and my research mate, Katie, we both put ourselves through the study and she actually listened to Ted's podcast the other day and messaged me. And she said, I kind of forgot that we even did that. It's so funny. I'm, I think it traumatized us and we're so far removed from it, but we did it. And in the process of doing that, I found out that I had a really high VO2 max, like an Olympic level VO2 max on the bike in tennis shoes in the lab. So my professor said, Jess, I think we need to take you out with my mountain bike team this weekend. I'm bringing a bike. You don't have a choice. <laughs> wow. Had you ridden a mountain bike before when you did that? I had a mountain bike that I would ride for transportation. And sometimes I would like go ride it up a hill in town from school just for exercise. But I didn't know anything about cycling. I, I know I wore a helmet, but I was probably wearing like regular workout shorts and had just had no idea what I was doing. I knew that I liked it. And I knew that the feeling of being on the bike and exercise was something that I was drawn to. But in Whitefish, where I grew up, road cycling specifically wasn't a sport. Being a professional athlete as a cyclist wasn't a sport. There's a lot of professional skiers that come out of Whitefish. So it just wasn't something that I knew about. That's crazy. Yeah. And also I feel any, like anybody that complains about the COVID test and how far up the nose it goes. Maybe <laughs> yeah. Like come do Jess's study. <laughs> how, like, did you, you rode on the bike with that thing up your butt? Yeah. And it's just like, it's a little, it hangs out. There's a little cord and then you remove it. Now to get core temperature, you swallow a capsule. <laughs> that sounds so way better. Yeah, someone figured out that this wasn't going well. <laughs> Do you have to like, do you wear bike shorts when you're doing this? Like, it seems like that would push things. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I think all the guys that I was recruiting, they would bring in their own pedals and shoes and that. So the whole thing to me at the time was foreign, but now I look back at it and I don't even think I owned a pair of bibs. In fact, I yeah. know for a fact, my first pair of bibs was a hand-me-down and I wore them to that mountain bike ride with underwear and one of the guys pulled me aside afterwards and he was like, this is really embarrassing. And I feel like one of the women should tell you this, but you don't actually wear underwear under your bibs when you yeah. ride. And I was like, thank you for telling me. <laughs> I had a friend, like, I think that's interesting because I had a friend that had been riding for probably two or three years and was a strong rider. And we were on a ride together and I was behind her and I was like, she's got, she's got underwear on what do I do? And I said, well, I just told her, I said, do you have underwear on? She's like, yeah. I'm like, you don't wear underwear with bibs. You don't? I'm like, no, you don't wear underwear with bibs. She's like, that would make such a difference. Yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't understand. Hey, I am team. You don't wear underwear under any workout pants. So just, yeah. If you're doing a workout, it's not, if you're doing a workout, yeah, they're pointless. It's, it's not anyway, that, that's a total side note. I know a lot of people do, but <laughs> Just don't wear them on the outside. Yeah, don't wear them. <laughs> That'd be really weird. That would be very awkward. Well, that, I mean, you talking about that, kind of listening to that podcast, it led me to even thinking more about, you were talking about the three hats that you were wearing as a, as a pro cyclist, as a chef, and as an entrepreneur. Um, and I, I really, it really struck me. Um, if you haven't listened to the podcast, obviously go listen to King of the Ride with Jess Sarah's on it, when Jess Sarah's on it, because it's actually really informative. But um, I really appreciated the fact that you were talking about the hustle that you had to do as a female, um, 
as a female athlete trying to get to do this as a job, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? And, and, you know, I know your, your boyfriend is a professional cyclist too, and how kind of those comparisons so that, that the listeners to this can kind of understand what it, what it means to be a pro female cyclist. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about this and I don't want it to come off in any way, shape or form that I'm complaining. Cause I'm sure. more of like, you find a problem and do something positive to fix it. But the reality is, is there is a problem in cycling and it's deep rooted specifically in women's cycling. And there's a shocking disparity in the, the ways that women's cycling has evolved over time versus men's cycling. And I think it can be glamorized what it's like to be a professional athlete. And it was something that I actually didn't understand until I got in the sport either. And I was meeting women who were Olympians and at that level who were struggling and doing GoFundMes and working odd jobs in the off season to support their career. And I think it's just sort of a systemic thing in cycling where there really is no sort of platform to support teams. There's no business model or infrastructure that keeps things alive and helps it grow. You know, for example, there's no like franchisement. Um, there, it's sort of like an inverse model when it comes to looking at television exposure. So if there isn't television exposure, sponsors don't want to be on board. And so a lot of the times teams get criticized for underpaying riders, but a lot of women's teams wouldn't exist if there was a minimum salary. And I mean, I basically pursued cycling as a passion, hoping that I could move up in the ranks, but it was never a career that I knew would, that I would be able to support myself with. And even if I could support myself on a given year with a salary, it wasn't a career where you're like putting something aside to your 401k or an IRA or something and like making a plan. It's just sort of survival. And so what it, the unique thing about the women's Peloton is that there are women who have PhDs. There are women like me that own businesses. There are women who are teachers and it's just kind of become a common thing. And it, it's kind of fascinating to watch everybody balance their careers with racing because you're exhausted and you're giving all of your physical and mental energy to racing, but then having to finish a race and be at a host house and all eight of you are like glued to the computer, typing away, doing whatever job that you have. And it, I think the, the most I've ever made was $14,000 a year on a professional team, um, an American UCI team. And I felt like that was a really good salary. I felt like I was lucky that I even got to that point. And I know that there are women in America that on some teams that have larger budgets or a title sponsor that provides a larger budget for salaries can make up to maybe like 30 or 35, but that's the most I've ever heard of a woman making. And usually if you do make that, you're buying your own food on the road, you're buying your own health insurance. So it can be really tricky to navigate. And then my, I raced on two UCI teams, the first being the team that's now called 2020. 
And when I raced on, it was 2016. So they renamed the team after the Olympic year every four years. And then I raced on Hoggins, Berman, Supermint. And my last year in Hoggins, Berman, Supermint, we went to a model where every woman on the team made the exact same salary. So we each made $7,000, which I actually liked and appreciated because the year before I had been one of the higher paid riders and it wasn't a very good feeling to me knowing that maybe one of my teammates who worked really hard in all the races because they weren't a rider that got results would get paid less. And that unfortunately is a model that a lot of teams use and they're sort of like this result shaming where if you aren't getting results, you may not get paid at all. You may be told like, you're lucky that you even get a bike and that you even, you know, get the opportunity to be on a team because there's a thousand other girls who are dying to move up into a pro team and will take that sort of treatment. And then there is like the scale up of who's getting the results. And so again, it's cyclical where, of course, if you're getting results, that's the press, that's the attention for all of the sponsors and teams need that. But behind that, there's a lot of people who are working really hard to achieve those results. Like cycling, road cycling is a team sport. Mm -hmm. So, so walk, walk us through like what a day would look like. I mean, you kind of talked about people getting back and like getting on their computer, like what time are you getting up and what's the day look like? And then you're, you're done and then, and then you're not done because you're still working. So I think it's really different in America versus Europe. And I haven't spent a ton of time in Europe, but I'll walk you through sort of the differences. Uh, in American cycling, we're usually at a stage race with men. And so they'll normally put the women in the morning and the men later in the day. So you get up, <clears throat> you're up maybe three hours before a nine o'clock stage. You leave to the course. If it's a drive, maybe you drive an hour, you get there at least an hour, an hour and a half early. You have a team meeting, you all sign on together. Um, and then you race, regroup hope everybody made it safely through the race, drive back, eat, shower. Um, luckily, I've always pretty much had a swan year on the teams I've been on. One year, we um, didn't have a swan year, but we'll usually get a 15 to 30 minute leg rub or massage. And by then, it's, it's like two, three o'clock, and everybody is kind of like working through dinner. And a lot of the times, if you're at one of the bigger races, sometimes, like I've been in scenarios like in Australia, where the tour down under is incredibly highly supported for women. Don't get me wrong. This was like one of the most well done scenarios I've ever seen where they gave us race vehicles, they gave us like our own personal tour guide. However, the women were staying in a boy's dormitory like a boarding school dormitory and the men were staying in a Hilton. So there's always like these little differences where like maybe they don't serve us breakfast or something. So it's like that in Europe, it's even harder. And that's why it's really hard to make the transition because you go over there and you, you're not racing until the middle of the day, you're off your American time schedule. And mm -hmm. so you're trying to balance how you do your job at home maybe remotely from there and it's just so dang exhausting because the racing there is crazy it's just completely different than racing in america interesting 
And what in comparison, I know that it's all over the board for males too, but what's the salary range for a male pro? You know, that's another interesting thing is when I came into the sport, it was growing. So road cycling in America was growing. And I think there was like seven or eight UCI women's teams and maybe even a couple more men's teams. And so it seemed like there was this trajectory that if you committed enough time that you were, you know, like in any career that I can think of, if you spent this much energy putting you know, your mental and physical energy into a career, you would excel, you would be promoted, you would go on. And the cycling kind of took a, a different sort of turn in the last few years. And obviously COVID hasn't really helped that even for the European teams. But I think in general, at the level that I've raced at in America, a lot of men experience something similar, but in the past there's been bigger stepping stones. So where there's all these women's teams were kind of like on this level playing field, but for men, they, they were categorized into three main categories. And as you stepped up, there were salary minimums designated by the UCI. So you knew once you got from C to B, you were going to make X salary. And then once you jumped up again into like the world tour, you were going to make X salary. And so there's just a lot more structure for that. And this year was supposed to be the first year of implemented minimum salary on a women's world tour team where women's teams had that designation. However, like I said earlier, it forced some teams not to register as world tour teams because they knew if they had to pay their riders those salaries, they would run out of their budget and they couldn't exist as a team. So like an example I can give is my boyfriend, Sam, he races on a pro team in America and a UCI team. It used to be Jelly Belly and it's called Wildlife Generation. And he's in a similar situation to kind of what I've been used to, but now there's no stepping stones for men. So those teams have sort of gone away. And it's interesting, I asked Ted about his experience when he was going through the ranks and it was, it was similar to what I was talking about where it's like, if you get the results, like Sam, he won the KOM jersey at two stages last year of Tour of Utah. He had a bunch of great results. I would be like, you easily get hired and step up and it just doesn't really exist right now. So it's like wealth in any area. There's just this massive disparity where like there's 1% making that 99% of the money. And then there's 99% making the 1% down here. And it just seems like, how do we get from when it's that skewed? How do you balance it out? I, I don't really know. I don't have the answer to that. But I feel, I really feel for the talented women who are in road racing right now that the outcome is just looking a lot more bleak um, because there are so many talented women who work really, really hard at it. And I wish that there was more opportunity. It's a bummer. Yeah. Well, okay, so switching. If we talk, you know, going from that to talking about your career as a professional chef and now, and as an entrepreneur, talk about your, your JoJ bars. Yeah. So JoJ bars, um, are pretty much my main, main, main gig right now. I've, I'm not doing as much chef work. COVID actually 
kind of slowed that down. I've been able to devote more energy to Joe J. Barr. But I created Joe J. Barr actually just out of grad school. My friend, Leslie Patterson, who is Xterra world champion, I think three-time Xterra world champion, she actually was diagnosed with Lyme disease. I think she raced Moose Man. Is that in Vermont, Moose Man? It's a 70.3 Ironman. And she, uh, she got it. That sounds like it would be something in Vermont, but you know, everything, all the I'll Ironman. Go to the Googles while you tell the Acquired and named yeah. different. But I would like a Moose Man finisher medal. It sounds cool. Like, ant, like everyone gets a rack, antlers. <laughs> Um, well, she got bit by a tick at that race and had Lyme disease and was told she needed to go on a gluten-free diet. And this was like back in 2009, maybe when gluten-free wasn't a trendy thing. And she was really bummed because our favorite thing to eat on the bike is cookies. Uh, actually I attribute a lot of my positive and healthy eating habits and views about food to working with Leslie and sort of like having a really good model of how to fuel yourself on and off the bike. And she was super bummed. I said, I think that I can make something. I certainly can figure out how to make a gluten-free cookie. And I started making them in pans like they, so I could cut them like a bar. And it turned out that a lot of people really liked the recipes. She suggested making a flavor called white chocolate coconut. And I thought, that sounded gross because I don't really like white chocolate and I don't really like coconut that much. But when I put it together, it's turned out to be our bestseller for the past four or five years. It's our signature flavor. So I owe that flavor to Leslie for sure. But it was just, it was a tinker project in the kitchen. And I actually was taking some of the relevant research, which is now a little bit more known, which is that endurance athletes need more fat in their energy food. So there needs to be a good balance of carbohydrates and fat, not a lot of protein. So I just had like my little notepad in the kitchen and I'd write down all the ingredients. I wasn't even plugging it into a computer program. I was just like, okay, it needs to look like this. And I would make the bars. I'd see if they'd stay together and not fall apart in our jersey pockets if we felt good and we ate them and then I came up with like a pretty solid recipe and was selling them around town and selling them across the country to triathletes and cyclists that I knew and that's finally when I decided to move into a commercial kitchen called a co-packing facility and kind of create a more formal business and a more formal design and it's been, it's been a crazy, crazy adventure since then. I've, I feel like I've put myself through business school doing this. <laughs> I, there's a lot to learn from distribution to marketing to even now social media. You know, that really wasn't a thing in, when I first started making them. So I'm learning a lot. And it's been really, really great to watch the company grow slowly. I need to try one of those. I know. I know. I'll send you a box. I really want to try one of those, but it sounds delicious. I know. <laughs> we, we even have a flavor called pancakes and bacon and it's plant-based. So it has smoke <laughs> and it has maple syrup. And that's perfect for the people that are like, especially in the South, maybe it's not like this in Montana where you're like, if you want to ride on the weekend in the summer, you have to get up so early and you don't want to eat breakfast. Yeah. Before you leave the house, you're like, it's like 
4.30 a.m. is too early. To Just get to get the calorie. You know, that's funny. A lot of people tell me that they message me that your bars are so good that I actually found something that I can eat early like that, um, which was the whole point is I want when you eat it to feel like you're eating a homemade treat, not like an energy bar. So they're really fresh and they're made in a, they're actually baked individually like a cookie on a pan. So yeah, we definitely got, they, you distribute them at REI too, right? Yes. You can find them at REI and I love working with that company because they hold all of their vendors to really high sustainability standards. And it's actually helped me change some of the processes we use for our film is now partially solar made. Um, and then all of our boxes that they go in are certified in a bunch of different ways, like rainforest certification, all sorts of certifications. And so it's really pushed me as a business owner to look at better practices for, for the products that we're using. And that's probably something you wouldn't typically think about. I mean, it's something that you see other like larger companies doing and you're like, I want to be like that. But then when you're in it, you realize how hard it is to align everything that you want to do. You know, I want our business to support chef cycle because that's something that I'm into. And I am like, it's really important to me that we're looking at our community closely and doing community projects like beach cleanups. And then you just, so you have to kind of, do a storyboard of your missions and having a company kind of keeping their finger on your pulse saying you can't be part of this initiative unless you do these things. It's helpful. And so I appreciate the fact that they're a company that really practices what they preach. And I feel really, really proud every time I walk into an REI and I'm like, I don't know how that's there. (laughs) Like I really don't know how I'm doing this, but this is pretty, pretty cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Like, you know, a woman owned company that it just, it's just, I just love it. I think it's really rad. So congratulations. I mean, I know it's hard work, but it's, it's just awesome to see for sure. So thank you. I did. I liked your story about uh, reaching out to the REI buyer who had gone to the competitor school and that that was pretty funny. Yeah. I had to, I had to use a little football talk. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, whatever if this works. doesn't work, then, oh, well. <laughs> whatever works. Well, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that uh, positive and healthy view that you picked up on food from Leslie and just even some of, you know, how you talked about that in the webinar. Mm-hmm. I put a little clip of that on Instagram and it really resonated with people. Like, I think a lot of times, and I, I hear this all the time, like, um, well, I'm riding my bike, so now I can eat a burger today, or I can, um, sorry, it's my dad, Um, or I can, uh, you know, have a beer, or, you know, using exercise as permission to eat, so I think you have a little bit of different take on the way we should be thinking about food and exercise. Yeah, I think somewhere along my athletic career, I realized that maybe my um, thought process of how I look at food was actually helping other people. And I feel lucky that maybe I didn't come from an environment or sport that led me to have a negative relationship with food. But even though I didn't, 
I encountered that when I was getting into cycling because, and I don't want to say it's triathlon's fault, but I started doing Xterra triathlon first and triathletes um, in general, you know, they look like goddesses <laughs> and everything's so, so tan. in the race weight, race weight, watts, there's all this talk. And it's hard not to get sucked into thinking, wow, I don't look like that. And for when I first started racing, I was very novice and I definitely hadn't developed my full capacity, you know, from a physical standpoint, but I definitely made, I would make comparisons when I would line up and I would already be like, minimizing my athletic capabilities on the start line because of how other people looked. But I kept proving that theory wrong over and over again, because I would always, I'm not a great swimmer. I'll just put that out there. I didn't grow up swimming. So I struggled even learning to do that as an adult. But once I got on the bike, I mean, I was out of there and I would just be catching people, catching people always on the climbs. And I started to realize that one thing that I knew how to do was fuel because that's what I was studying in grad school. So just from a book standpoint, a scientific standpoint, the information was there for me. However, you, I got into a negative pattern of thinking, well, if I can do this well, maybe I can just knock it down a little. And I think there's something interesting that happens in our brains when we're exercising. The adrenaline's there, you feel good, you're happy. So it's easy to be like, maybe I can push through the end of this workout with like out eating as much as I know that I'm supposed to. But it always comes back to bite you because you end up not feeling good later, not recovering well. And for some of us, our bodies just don't work that way. I think that is like the number one takeaway for women is that our bodies are all so different. The way that our hormones work are also different. It's a reason why some of us can use a certain birth control and, and it doesn't work for another person. But the reality is, is that when you put your body in that sort of like starvation, like fight or flight mode through a long period of time, it never ends up doing good things. And so I realized that really quickly early on. And like I mentioned, Leslie really helped me fine tune what nutrition looked like. And that when you are doing a ton of activity and you're training, you have to really, really focus on that fuel like it's part of your job. We all spend a lot of money on gear and coaching and training schedules. But then somehow the nutrition is like the really, really tricky part. So I think like the most important thing is finding that support group and finding that coach or that friend that has had experience and that you actually feel comfortable even saying like, it's okay to say like, I'm uncomfortable with my weight and I wish that I could change it. And my biggest advice is don't try to lose weight on the bike, lose weight at night. Or Janelle, who did that podcast or that um, webinar with me, she always says, eat like a queen in the morning and a popper at night. So it's just like that shift in thinking that if you fuel yourself, you're going to get more out of your workout, you're going to get more out of your training. And then also making that connection to overall, like why we do sport. It's because it brings us joy. 
and it makes us feel good. And we love being outside and we love the feeling of exercise. And most of us like sharing it with someone else, whether it's a friend or a daughter or a parent. And when you're kind of obsessing about the way that your body is or that negativity and it's all centered around food, it takes away from all of those positive things, all of those uplifting things. And I think that that's kind of the message that I try to spread in the example I try to show is that fueling, fueling yourself is, is a really, really positive thing, but it just takes a little bit of practice. I love that philosophy. Yeah. And you fuel, so you're known for your uh, pancakes. Tell us about your pancakes that you, you make. I even saw a picture. I think you posted one after you did the webinar. Yeah. I, I love pancakes and I like them because you can get a lot of calories into something, even if it's small, like you were saying, even just like a tiny pancake, if you get some almond butter and maple syrup on it in the morning, you have your calories, but they are also a great vehicle for sandwiches um, on the ride. And I started calling them QOM cakes and I put cream cheese and jam or cream cheese and maple syrup in mine and they get all warm in your pocket and they're so delicious. But I, I converted Sam, my boyfriend, when we first started dating, he was eating these little bowls of oatmeal. And I'm like, how can you do all the training you do on those little bowls of oatmeal? I mean, this is a special example. This is a person who's training 30 hours a week and he started eating pancakes and we, we make pancakes every single day. Does he have the does he have the recipe mastered too? Now he actually, okay. He makes the pancakes for me. <laughs> I madly type out emails in the morning. I'm like, okay, I gotta type all these emails before we ride. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. That's amazing. Yeah. Some Saturdays I'm just like, I really want some pancakes, but then I'm too lazy to make them. <laughs> yeah. If you get into the system of like, okay, you got all your, your skillet set up and everything. It helps that we do it every single day. But I wanted to mention in that talk, I, I talked about my philosophy of how to measure your calories, which I'm not like a huge fan of like counting calories or writing them down. But what Janelle and I, I kind of came from the same coaching staff that Janelle came from. So Leslie was coached by Janelle's coach, who was coached by Arnie Baker, who was sort of like an OG in the cycling world. And so we came from the same food philosophy and that's how we really connected because we could go out and hammer big rides and neither one of us would ever bonk. And so it was really nice. And there was never any like, oh, I'm trying to lose weight on this ride talk because we had both experienced the same coaching. But the rule of thumb is to think about the calories that you're going to put out on your ride. And then you try to consume those back from breakfast and what you're eating on the ride. And that way you finish even and you're not in the hole when you finish in a hole your body is always going to be trying to catch up mm -hmm. um, you'll have to replace those glycogen stores eventually to do your next ride so you might as well do it when your body is firing off instead of later in the day when you're like oh boy now i'm like craving the chips or the sugar or the this or the that which i mean happens anyways let's be honest i'm always but. craving the chips <laughs> Like, what am I talking about? This is horrible advice. <laughs> no, it's such good advice, but like literally it, I've, I've often said there's never been a French fry I met that I didn't like. 
So. <laughs> no, definitely not. Or a tater tot or a sweet potato fry. Yum! Hey. <laughs> I know. There are people that are like talking about the COVID and, you know, like I've got to give up ice cream and all this. And I'm like, life is too short. Like, has COVID not taught you life is too short to live yeah. without ice cream? Dang like, it. Yeah. See, I can live without ice cream, but I can't live without my potato chips and french fries. <laughs> you know, life is too short to live without french fries. I need both. Yeah. I know. Unfortunately, I love all the salty and all the sweet yeah. all the time. Yeah. I don't know how I got away with not being a sweet person, but I know my husband's a sweet person and like in many so different sweet. ways. Anyway, so sweet. But thank God I'm not because he would be huge if I was. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, it's funny. Sam calls it a sweet out and then a salt out when you like do the thing where you have the ice cream and then you need the salt out. Then yeah. You, you, you got to like, balance. Out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you got to balance out all that you just did. <laughs> um, well, we talked a lot about your pro cycling career and some about your ex Tara. And again, you kind of go through the whole thing with, um, with on the King of the Ride podcast, but uh, you were going to, or you were in the process of switching over to gravel this year and the season got cut a little short. <laughs> Yeah. What made you decide to do make the switch? I think I knew. So I snuck off to race rooted Vermont last year, which is Ted and Laura's gravel race in Vermont. And it was amazing. Like it exceeded my expectations of what gravel was by so many things. I mean, the community reminded me a lot of whitefish and they had, amazing catered food and I'd never had a maple creamy before. So I was like ready to move to Vermont the, right when I had one. <laughs> so I was like, this is great. And I was kind of tinkering with the idea of evolving, not retiring, but evolving from road racing. And once I did that event, I knew, okay, this is, this is where I want to be. This is where I belong. And I actually, my old teammate, Allie Leg from 2016, she raced also. And we were sitting at the welcome party on Friday night and everyone was drinking beer and eating creamies. And I looked at her and I said, you see why I want to switch out of road racing? <laughs> Cause you don't ever see something like that in road racing, like having a drink at a race. <sighs> no, not, not okay. So I knew that that was sort of like the direction I wanted to take. And growing up in Whitefish, I've always had, you know, growing up here, a lot of the roads were dirt roads. Now they're, a lot of them are paved, but that was what I knew. And it, it seemed fun. In 2013, when I was getting into racing, I won BWR, the Belgian Waffle Ride. And I think it was its second year and there was like 500 people that year, but I won that race and I was like, this is cool. This is something that I really like, but I was so gung-ho on road racing that I ended up going that route. So I think for me, making a shift out of road racing and a less demanding travel schedule was appealing because running a business, it's hard to be on the road all the time. And as a privateer gravel racer, you have a little more flexibility in creating your own schedule. And so that was appealing. And I had approached Canyon Bicycles because they're down in Carlsbad where I live most of the year. And I chatted with them about what some of my goals were. And a lot of my goals aren't aligned with just winning races. I 
have some ideas of what I wanted to do in our community and how to make, you know, getting entry into gravel a little more inclusive. And they were really on board with that. And they were sort of looking for a way to become more of a community brand and sort of branch out. And so once our goals aligned, it was really nice to have a large bike company supporting me because that is, you know, another vehicle to um, highlighting what, what I'm trying to do and, you know, definitely bringing more women into the sport. And they, they helped me host a gravel camp earlier in the year when we were still doing those types of things. And I won my first uh, gravel race ever on my Canyon Grail, which was the Rock Cobbler in Bakersfield, California in February, um, which is almost like a mountain bike race on gravel bikes. <laughs> It was slightly terrifying. I was telling Laura and Ted actually that I was thinking, oh boy, I don't know if this is actually what I should be doing, but it, it ended up being a really good day. Um, so the plan was to hit all the big races and some of the smaller races this year. Um, and then Sam and I are actually in the process of planning our own event for next year up here in Whitefish as well. Oh, cool. That's good. Oh my gosh. I have yeah. this dream of next summer <laughs> spending a month in Vermont, then a month in Montana, and a month in Washington State. So when no winter event is going to be, because I'm this is I'm never spending a summer in Atlanta again. <laughs> yeah, that sounds miserable. I you know I wouldn't. You should definitely come here, and we we haven't announced the date yet. It's was really important to us to think about the gravel schedule as a whole and to have it flow and not interrupt anything, especially because selfishly I want to race all the events that exist already and to make it something where you could visit the area, go to Glacier National Park. But one of the reasons I was ever able to have a successful college career is I have, I tell the story more from a food perspective and why I've been drawn to chef cycle for no kid hungry for so long is because I grew up in a very low income home and we often had help from, my mom was a cleaning lady and we often had help from some of her clients or food leftover and vacation rentals. And she always made it work for us in some way. But I think that part of my childhood drew me to food in a way that I was never expecting, um, becoming a chef and owning an energy bar company. But as I was growing up here, when I was in high school, I had this devastating moment when I learned, oh my gosh, it costs a lot of money to go to college. And so from my sophomore year on, I worked with our guidance counselor and applied for local scholarships. And basically paid my way through undergrad with local scholarships. And so I've had this dream my whole life of how am I going to be able to create my own scholarship in Whitefish? How can I give back to women who are trying to go to school? And what if there was like a really unique way to include tribal women because we're um, right by the Blackfoot Nation and also providing a way to give them bikes for transportation when they do go to school. So a lot of the idea of the race is going to be a charitable aspect of kind of like infusing that back into the community here. Um, 
And so it's, it's big goals and it's a lot of planning, but I'm really, really excited that it seems like a lot of people want to come to Whitefish. <laughs> I'm on it. We're going to do it. We're doing it. We'll just take a Girls Gone Gravel road trip. Yes. Yes. I love it. <laughs> I was thinking, how many tents can we fit in our backyard? <laughs> Christy has a van. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Well, Jess, we have really loved this today. So appreciate your time. And how can people find, uh, find you and then find more uh, by your bars? So I'm at Jess Sarah, J-E-S-S-C-E-R-R-A on Instagram, Facebook. I don't really use Twitter that much. Sorry. I, sometimes I forget it's there for like three weeks in a row. I'm bad. Um, and then at Joe Bar, J-O-J-E-B-A-R on Instagram and Facebook and www.jojbar.com. If you would like to try bars, you can use the code TRYJOJ15 for 15% off your first order. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciated being on today and I'll definitely ship you some bars. I am not going to say no to that. We, we will take them. <laughs> Shoot me your address when we're, we're off air here. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jess. Let's stay in touch. Stay cool. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you. The Girls Gone Gravel podcast is a production of Live Feisty Media. Subscribe, like, and comment on your listening platform. Our producer is Taylor Mayhem Rudolph. You can follow us on all of the socials at Girls Gone Gravel or visit our website at girlsgonegravel.com. Mm-hmm.